0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, A Fountain Opened. Scripture tells us that God is love, but our modern society has flipped that phrase around and thinks that love is God. We're infatuated with love, but we haven't the faintest clue what it actually is. This sermon is sort of like trying to describe the ocean to someone who has never seen it, using only a spoonful of ocean water. We can point at it, let them taste it, and say, it's sort of like this, but we'll never be able to fully describe it. The same with God's great love. Hey, taste this. This is only a small drop of the extraordinary wonder of His love please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy.
1: A fountain opened. This is about love. Doesn't that sound strange? Doesn't it almost sound predictable? You come to a church in America and they're going to preach on love. Either that or grace, which ironically, this message is on love. And to get to love, you have to understand grace. And so. However, as I teach on this, this isn't some sappy version of love, not some love song version or some uh, melodramatic idea. This is biblical love. And when I talk about grace, this isn't just a big hug from God. You see, we have redefined in the Christian world today the concepts of love and grace, and ironically, faith. We can talk about the machinery and the engine that keeps Christianity functional. And if you mess with those three words, and I could add more to it. For instance, the Holy Spirit. That's been tinkered with in our modern day as well. To the point where many of you in this room don't even want to touch the Holy Spirit because it's been so blasphemed even by the church. We've called the work of the flesh the work of the Spirit. And as a result, many of us, and for good reason, want to back the opposite way. We are saved by grace through faith. And... When you understand how grace works, you begin to recognize how significant it is. It's not just us being in the mud. We're covered with filth, and then God looks down, and he sees us in our muddened, uh, I just made up a word, state, and we are caked with the stuff known as sin, but God loves us so much that he comes and he hugs us in our muddened state. And when we understand grace to finish there, because guess what? He does. He does. He loves us in our caked state, but, get this, he loves us too much to leave us there. And this is where grace kicks into full gear because grace is expressed to us when we're in the mud and that God would send forth his son to not just hug us, but he gives us a bear hug. He wraps his arms around us and yanks us up out of the mud. Get this, that's grace. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace also loves us too much to keep the mud on us, so it cleanses us of all mud. And then guess what? Grace continues, and it sets us upon solid ground known as rocks so that we will be immovable in our life. So no matter what begins to collapse around us, whether it's an economic system, whether it's a political system, whether it's a moral system, we will not be moved. And get this, grace is not done. Did you think grace was merely a hug? Grace, then, is the operation of God to then fill this life with feet set upon rock, with his very life, so that these hands become his hands, and they begin to do what God's hands would do in this earth. These eyes become his eyes. It's called the body of Christ. And now my eyes, if they're God's, and they're possessed by him, and he owns it and he's filled this life, begin to look where he looks. And these hands then do the work that he is looking at. This heart begins to beat with his burdens. These ears hear his cry. This mind thinks his thoughts. This mouth speaks his words. And suddenly the world is turned upside down. That's what we're saved by. We're saved by that grace. By faith. By not just positive thinking. Many of us think that faith is just this notion of saying, well... Yeah, and and there probably is a God. No, no, that's not faith. Faith is knowing who God is and believing. But we're not just believing what we want to be true. I just think God just will give me a Ferrari. That's not faith. Faith must be built upon something solid. And you don't come up with the solid. He did. He is the solid, and he's revealed that solid in the word of God. And the word of God is a rock. And when you believe what the word of God says, that's faith. When God says it, you say, well, he can't lie. And he can't change. So what he said is still true today. I believe it. And that's what's known as a believer. A believer is one who takes God at his word. So, remember what I said this message was about? It was about love. Well, how does love mix into all this? Well, that's what I'm going to teach you. You see, love is very, very, very important in this whole operation known as Christianity. And yet it too has been abused, it has been diminished, to a very, very smallish thing. And what's ironic is we're supposed to be marked by it, and yet most of the world would laugh and hold us in derision to say, love, huh? And yet that shouldn't be the question. They may make fun of us. They may mock us. They may ridicule us. They may pin us to crosses. But the one thing they cannot get away with is saying that we don't have love. Because we ought to. And so, say what they may, we must be marked by that which changes the world. So, a fountain opened. The looty pump. I have... A unique project that I've been working on for the past year. And you know what? I was counting up how many fountains I have. I have built in the past five weeks, get this, seven fountains. And that's very important when it comes to this message, even, which is just an irony. Uh, And you know what? I picked this message this morning. And I wasn't even thinking of the fact that I was working on a landscaping project. I know for any of you that have been at my house lately, you'd say, oh, yeah, right. It had to be subconscious, at least, Eric. <laughs> I've been working with all sorts of water and all sorts of pumps and things like that. And my message fits perfect with this. But we have this pump. So yesterday, we had this big shindig over at the house. And we turned on the pump. And some water came out. And then, pff, came to a dribble. Doesn't that sound like our spiritual life? Right there, you turn on the pump, it's like you have this this momentary joy, and it's like, oh, this is wonderful, and then this little dribble comes out. You see, there's something about a pump that is meant to work, and it's meant to pump water. And in our Christian life, there is meant to be a free-flowing fountain. The title of this message is A Fountain Opened. And that fountain is what I'm going to explain. And I'm going to describe it so that we can understand that this is not supposed to be just a little dribble. That's the Lutie pump. Okay, we're not talking about the Lutie pump. I don't want you to adopt the Lutie pump. I don't want you to believe in the Lutie pump. I want you to go to the heavenly one. The Lutie's old water purifier. I have all sorts of illustrations in my own home. (laughs) We had this water purifier... It was really funny. Leslie wanted to get a in sink, under the counter type of water purifier because she was so tired of our, uh, our our water purifier. And I was only thinking dollars and cents, so I was like, "It's fine. It's, it's it's fine." But as our family continues to grow, and then we have people in our house constantly, we would always take the pitcher over. In fact, Hudson's job was to fill up this uh, this water purifier every every morning, and so the water would go in there and it filtered through. But then literally by like eight in the morning, it was already empty. And then you're like tipping the thing, trying to get the stuff out. And so Lester was like, we need something with more water, okay? This is just not working. I'm like, no, this thing will make it. We'll just keep filling it up, filling it up, filling it up. And then finally I came to the point where I was like, this thing is ridiculous. <laughs> well, what was the problem? You see, the, the thirst in the Ludi home was greater than the water purifier could slack. It was insufficient for the task. And so much of what we are lugging around in our spiritual life is very similar to that. We have a thirst, but we never have enough. And it is a great frustration. It really is. It gets to the point where you finally say, this thing stinks. And how many people have turned to Christianity and said, this thing doesn't work. And it's not that it doesn't give you a little water. There's a little satisfaction in it. It's sort of like the Israelites in the wilderness. It's hot, baking sun, sandy, uh, you know, everything about it's just desert. But they had manna every day. Their shoes weren't wearing out. I mean, should they be complaining? And you're sort of like, that's my spiritual life. You see, it's not that you don't have a little dribble from the fountain. You got something there, but it's not what it's supposed to be. You read the Word of God, and you're like, now that's what I'm after. And yet something is blockading it insufficient to supply for, the, for every thirsty lootie. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So what's going on with your fountain? How's your Christian life working? That's what scripture says right there. Is that what you are finding? Because that's fact. Remember I said faith believes in something solid. Your experience thus far in your Christian life is not the solid. That's the solid. I want you to turn your eyes off of your experience and turn it to the Word of God. And it says in the Word of God that your God is able to make all grace, remember what grace is, it's not just a hug, it's power, enabling power to equip you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible, lifts you out of the mud, cleans you off, sets your feet on solid ground, sticks the almighty power of God inside of you to equip you and to enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. And he will make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. No more complaining. We've got ourselves a God who can supply all our need. The Love Brigade. I had a dream quite a few years ago about, I don't remember if they were called the Love Brigade, but that it was something like this, where this ministry came to town, and I was thinking, what a cheesy name that is, the Love Brigade. And sure enough, you know what they were marked by? Love. They were serving me, they were washing my feet, they were doing whatever, and I was so moved. I mean, I was a Christian leader at the time, I even had this dream. And I remember being so moved and I woke up and I said, I don't care how cheesy the name is, that's Christianity. That was it. And yet, it's not what most of us are used to. See, most of us are used to a church that has a social polish to it, don't get me wrong, and it's nice around the edges and it will be self-sacrificing at times, but overall it's made up of a whole bunch of individuals and a whole bunch of individual marriages and families that have needs. And they are focused more on their needs than they are everyone around them. What would happen if a room this size, if all of us were filled to the full with God and we didn't need to spend the time 24 hours a day focusing on us? And imagine if we had our time to devote outward. What would happen in a room like this? I mean, first of all, we'd start looking around saying, do you need anything? Can I help you? And everyone would be like, no, no. And then we'd all band together and we'd say in one voice, do you need help? And we'd be like a rushing river over this community. The problem is most of us are spending our energies dealing with us when we need to be dealing with what's on his heart. He's not just looking here, he does tend to us, don't get me wrong, but then he, he, that's just phase one. It's like, all right, we got you set, now you're my vessel. Now we can turn outward. It's sort of like having a cracked pot. Okay, you need to fix the cracked pot, otherwise, it's not gonna be useful to fill up other vessels. But once the pot is fixed, guess what? What's it gonna do? Just sit on the counter and hold water? No, no, start dumping! And that's the way we are. He fixes us, He repairs us so that we can begin to give to others. Deluge. One of my favorite novels of all time is called The Deluge. And most people don't ever have a clue what even the word means. Great word. And so I'm going to define it for you. But, by the way, for those of you that are novel readers, uh, The Deluge by Henrik Sienkiewicz. He's the same guy who wrote Quo Vadis. Great book. There's a book before. It was a best-selling book in Poland for 100 years. Doesn't it sound boring? The History of Poland. (laughs) It's that good. (laughs) Any overflowing of water. This is what a deluge is. Any overflowing of water, an inundation, a flood, a swell of water over the natural banks of a river or shore of the ocean, spreading over the adjacent land, the great flood or overflowing of the earth by water in the days of Noah. That's actually part of the original definition even in the 1828 dictionary. It's a great flood or overflowing of the earth by water in the days of Noah. It's called the deluge. The waters deluged the earth and destroyed the old world. Now I'm giving you a hint of where I'm going with this right there. The waters deluged the earth and destroyed the old world. So, in Noah's time, what we oftentimes don't see is the gospel. But there's an old sinful world, and there's a new creation that God wants to bring about. And so, God flooded the old earth, deluged it, and what came forth was a new creation. And in the process of that flood, the old was destroyed. And a new was born. It means to wash clean, to overwhelm a previous manner of living and to wholly purge it of its impurity. Sounds a little like baptism, doesn't it? And it is. It's called the deluge. Genesis 9 I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. So God destroys the earth with a flood. And then he declares, I will never do that again. I will never destroy the earth with a flood. And so he gives us a symbol. And this symbol, we all know it as a rainbow, but most of us don't realize that a rainbow is a very Christian symbol. It's not just a symbol of the rainbow coalition. And so we've lost the symbol. You know that the rainbow is a symbol of God when he's described in scripture that he's surrounded by a rainbow? Why? Well, there's seven colors, Remember how I said seven fountains? See, I'm going to weave this all together somehow. You see, there's seven colors. It's a symbol of God. It's a symbol of his nature, and it's unchanging. You know that the symbol of the rainbow is the same today as it was thousands of years ago? still is. You see, it's the I am who doesn't change. He is who he is. He says, I am that I am. And his rainbow is his symbol of covenant. If he says he won't destroy the earth with a flood... Then he will not destroy the earth with the flood again, even though Windsor is under flood waters, even as I say this. There's a lot of irony to this message. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. A study in the manifold wonder of love. When you look at the word manifold, it means a variegated color scheme. So, like a rainbow is probably one of the best ways of describing it. You see, if you look at the red in a rainbow, did you know that it's not just a solid red? It's shades and gradients of red. And that's the way manifold works. God is not just the color red. If someone says, so what's God like? They could say, he's red. And they would be right, but they're not fully right. Because he's also so much more than red. And someone else could say orange. And they would be right. It would be accurate to say that God is orange. But he's so much more than orange. Yellow. Green. Blue. Indigo. Violet. All of them would be correct as far as the description of God. He is love. He is just. He is patient. He is kind. These are all truths about God. But when you begin to explore God, you realize that he is manifold. We are human. We cannot fathom how big God is, how great God is. And so what God does is he folds himself up and reveals himself by folds. And he reveals to us at one time, for instance, it's very difficult for us to see multiple aspects of his nature at once. We're very limited creatures. I don't know if you've discovered that about yourself. But when you hear a sermon, we have to bake down a little sermon and fold it all tight and say, here, that's what a sermon is. It's just a little piece of the whole, and it's all folded up, and that's what's called many folds. That's where the word comes from. It's many folds. Now, what's interesting is say we folded up all that there is about love, and we put it down into one message like this, and we'd say, this is love, and it'd be true, but then you know what we could do for the rest of the 365 days of the year if we kept preaching on love? We begin to unfold it, and you begin to realize just love, just the color red, over and over, there's so much richness and depth to it. See, God is an untrollable. He is so deep, so profound, that we could never even reach the end of this frontier known as his nature, and yet he reveals himself, and we can still know him. You see, he's shown us what we need, but then the more we dig into that, the more we realize about it. So studying the manifold wonder of love, as we go through this, I'm going to teach this from a unique angle, and I've done this this exact same technique as far as teaching this for multiple different messages, but I teach from a principle we'll call motive. Okay? Motive is like a murder mystery. Someone had a motive. What was the motive for the crime? Well, that means that which is behind their action, that which is back here, pushing them. There's a reason why someone did that. What is that reason? Well, that would be a motive. And so That which causes motion. You ever heard the word automotive? Locomotive? You see, a plant is not motive. It doesn't move anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. This is that which is behind movement. So there's an action. There's some place and some direction that you are headed in. So why or how are you going to get there? An automotive, the reason it's moving is because it has some kind of automation that helps it move. And so you know that a a rabbit used to be called like a locomotive, Uh, but that was before the locomotive came along, and that would be awkward to call it a locomotive now, because there's a big difference between a true locomotive and a rabbit. However, a rabbit can actually go bloop and hop around all by itself, whereas your daisy doesn't go bloop, bloop, bloop. It's just a fascinating thought. Okay, so you're a locomotive. You're this being or this creature that actually moves around. But there's something that moves you, and that's what a motive is, okay? So that which causes motion, that which incites to action, that which determines the choice or moves the will. Now, I'm going to give you a little sneak peek of where I'm going. Our motive before we know Christ is messed up. Our motive, that which moves us, is wrong something has become twisted inside of us so that we are not headed in the right direction. We are headed towards eternal damnation. It's because a motive is wrong in us, and we don't see it. This is typically translated as predestination. However, what it means in its most basic sense is the predecision—that that there is a decision ahead of time that has been made. And God says, this is going to be done. The predecision, the predetermination, the eternally established inner wiring of the will, that which is set and hardened long ago. Did you know that God's motive or that which moves him is already set? You know that God doesn't change, he just is. And so God is already hunk set. And have you ever thought about it, that God could be anything? He could have any character, any nature, and yet he just happens to be good? He just happens to be inclined towards our benefit? It's (laughs) truly extraordinary, because it could be the opposite. But instead, he is set in his position. So this is the praorizo. We're going to call it the set motive. There is something that moves God. You know, there's another uh, factor that we we have in this universe, and it's called darkness. The powers of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And did you know that they have a motive too? You see, there are two motives at work in this universe. The motive of light and dark. The motive of life and death. And those two are at enmity, they are against one another. But the two motives are set. It's like the old dog that can't be taught any new tricks. There's a certain period of time where clay is malleable, and then it sets. God's motive is set, and Satan's motive is set. Satan can't repent. By the way, he's already judged at the cross, so don't feel bad for him. He's just done. He's he's done for. Okay? He's already judged. He's already set in his position. His destiny is already determined. Yours hangs in the balance. The reason this season of history is so critical is because our motives are malleable. And the enemy is playing against that clay to try and set it in the wrong direction. And the advantage, you could say, that the enemy has is we start, as we pop out of the womb, headed in the wrong direction. And without intervention, we're dead. So the set motive, the guaranteed, wholly predictable, never-shocking behaviors. Oh yeah. Classic enemy. Or oh yeah, classic God. God always behaves that way. The enemy always behaves this way. So it's the guaranteed, wholly predictable, never-shocking behavior, altogether, always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. So we'll call it the guaranteed behavior. You know that there's certain things you can know about God. And you can know that he will, in fact, do it. And this isn't the power of positive thinking. This is the revealed word of God. God says this is who he is. This is what he'll do. He's promised. He cannot lie. Watch. He'll do it. And guess what? He will. You know that in the Bible it says that he is going to come again? As a rider on a white steed with crowns upon his head, his clothing dipped in blood on his thigh. It's like a tattoo or something. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's gonna come, the faithful and true will return. Guess what? It's a fact. Even though it hasn't happened in the natural realm, guess what? It will be done. The set motive is already in place. It's a guaranteed behavior. When God says it, he cannot lie, he will perform it. So, guess what? I believe. So the guaranteed behavior, or the parizzo. Listen to John 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, this is Jesus talking, and that they may have it more abundantly. You see, this is the motive of God. From before the foundations of the earth, it's set. And before the foundations of the earth, what is God intending to do? To come and bring life. What is the enemy up to? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. You know that he's been doing that from the beginning. You see, the motives are set. The praorizo, the predetermined behavior, is already there. They are already headed in these directions. You hang in the balance. Your motive is malleable, soft clay. And the longer you live, have you noticed that the clay begins to set? And I I can't tell you how long clay stays soft. All I can say is if you're at all yearning for salvation, go after it today. Don't wait for another day for a little more hardening. Go after it today. The Spirit of God has kept you moist. We must change directions. So, Darkness has a guaranteed behavior, a song. It's to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now, I added a little bonus one for you, to break the law. You see, the law is the nature of God. This is who he is. The law isn't bad, by the way. It's just that it doesn't save us. So when you try and come under the law and perform the law to be saved, uh, you get into big trouble. But the law is just perfect righteousness. It's God's behavior. This is who he is. This is how he lives. This is how he thinks. And so the enemy cannot match with God's behavior. He's the opposite of God's behavior. And so the or the predetermination of darkness, is darkness is opposite of light. Darkness cannot mimic light. Death cannot mimic life. They're completely opposite. You know what death is? It's just the absence of life, which is why it cannot mimic it. Death is merely when life has been removed. Darkness is merely when light has been removed. There's no substance to darkness. It's just the absence of substance, the absence of light. And so when darkness works, when darkness functions, it always puts out the lights. It always kills. It can't help it. That's just what it does. And it's set in that. It will always do that. And then we have the praorizo of light, to bring life and that more abundant. And look at this little bonus I threw in at the end to fulfill the law. You know that God, when he works, always is in agreement with his nature? He can't violate his nature. So when he's working upon us, what happens? We begin to change into his nature. We begin to do what he would do. We begin to behave as he would behave. That's just how it works. It's a so set, guaranteed. These things happen. When the church of Jesus Christ begins to come into alignment with truth, then truth is revealed in and through us. So I'll introduce you to the law. It's that which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong. Let's liken each of our lives to a garden. Okay? Now imagine we just have a plot of land, and we've never really tended to it, we've never worked it. Or maybe we have worked it, but we never had good seed. We never had any water. What would a garden look like without any water? Have you ever noticed that there's certain things that always grow even when you have a drought and they still are green? I don't know how thistle works, but it's a very interesting plant because it seems to thrive on dryness and anything that's dead. It seems to, if it doesn't have good life, then it seems to move in. Weeds, weeds seem to thrive when the good stuff doesn't. And so imagine that your garden was a garden of weeds. And from a distance, you could look at it and squint and say, it's green. looks good. However, if you get up close to it, it's a tangled mess. There's no order to it. There's something about weeds where they just don't grow in any order, the way you want them to. They always pop up where you don't want them to. They don't look good. And I'm not saying that some of them don't have little flowers, but that's sort of like sin in our life. They like have a little flowers, so you think of keeping them around. are like, hey, it looks actually sort of nice over here. And yet, it is a bully plant, and it will push out all the good stuff. You see, if you had a garden, and it was full of weeds, it wouldn't be a healthy garden. However, if you had never heard of a good garden, you would think your garden was fine. And as a result, you're like, yeah, I have more weeds than them. And you're feeling all good. You're strutting around. It's like, you have more green in your little weed patch than they do. They have a lot of dirt in there. (laughs) You see, you could feel good about that, but what does the law do? The law comes in and shows you the perfect garden. It says, so is this what your garden looks like? Huh? My garden doesn't need to look like that, does it? Well, look at that garden. I've never seen anything like that. You see, what the law does is it exposes our sin. It exposes our rebellion. It exposes that something's wrong. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. But without the law, you wouldn't see it. You see, the law brings conviction of what is wrong. So that which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong. You see, there's something pushing you. I don't know that you realize this, but there's something that drives you in your life. And if that something has not been changed, which as we go through this message, I want you to evaluate if it has been. But it is that drive. It is either for God or it is for you. What was the enemy's appeal in the Garden of Eden? You, you, you don't need God. Sit on that throne. Come on, kick God off. You see, he doesn't want you to know that you could be as God. Self-exaltation. And when that is your motive, you see, when Adam and Eve stumbled into that, what happened is everything began to be distorted, and their motive was changed. The wet clay was altered. And now, their motive was them. And what did you inherit? The same motive. You inherited the self-motive. And self-motive leads to a guaranteed outcome. It's called hell. It's guaranteed. That leads to hell. A plus B equals C. Unless something comes in and changes your motive, unless something comes in and changes the core of your existence, you are headed in the wrong direction. So, the law. The law is good. It's just not your salvation. But God knew how salvation must work. You know that it says the law was a schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. This is what leads us to say, who can save me from this briar patch of weeds? Who can save me? Because the law only exposes, it doesn't give the salvation. It only shows you that you need salvation. So that which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong, to clarify the just punishment for a wrong motive. Uh, Yeah, if you have weeds, even one, you're doomed. Even one? You like pull up some of the weeds. Like, is that enough? No, even one. Even the leaf of one. <laughs> it's like one got buried as you were telling it under. It's like, oh, no. I don't know how to take care of this. And that's what it leads to. It leads to a desperation. I can't clean up my own problem. I've got a, I've got a whole bunch of weeds here. I take care of this one. one comes up over here. It's like, I, I, I then say I plant some good seed. There's no water. To water it, because I don't have water in me. I, I can't. The hot baking sun immediately brings up weeds and it chokes out my good seed. I need help from the outside. Who can save me from this body of death, is Paul's great statement in Romans 7. You know what the answer to that was? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, it's to clarify the just punishment for a wrong motive and to woo man's soul to repentance before man's wrong motive becomes set and no longer fixable. Don't let your motive get set in the wrong direction. One of the statements I say to Ellerslie students all the time, if you hunger for Jesus Christ, it's because he's after you. You wouldn't even long for him without him first making a move upon your soul. If you want him, believe me, the door is open. Come in. Enter in. Because a lot of us, well, I know how the enemy is. It's like, you've done too much. There's no way he would accept you. If you want him, it's because he wants you. There's a whole bunch of people out there that don't even want God. For some reason, you do. And I know you probably have a bunch of junk in your life, maybe a whole bunch of weeds. He knows it, and he's ready to deal with it. The love motive. So now we're going to get to the heart of the message. What is God's motive? Well, we already heard that it's to bring life. But what truly is his motive? What led him to come to this earth? What moved him? What was the impetus behind God that would carry such a burden on our behalf? That would be scourged and mocked and ridiculed and crucified? What would move God to do this? It's something very, very special. And it's not something that ever can be captured by a Hollywood love song. The world doesn't understand what we're about to talk about. This is something that is heavenly and it's sacred. For whatever reason, the world has tried to take this word called love hostage. And as a result, many of us as Christians have lost the value and the beauty and the majesty and the power of what this is. Only God can love like this. Even we can't unless we have God So the love motive, this would be an interesting definition of even what love is. Now, I could give you a lot of definitions of love, but we're going to keep it very simple. To share of itself. Remember, our motive before God changes us is self. But the love motive is to give. Whatever I have, to give it. That's what motivates us. To share of itself, to give the life of God away. Well, if you don't have the life of God, well, it's sort of hard to give it away. But love considers someone else as more important than you. Love considers their needs more than it does your own. Well, who functions that way? You could even say that back to you. It's like, no one functions that way. I know, except for God. You see, God functions that way. And then, what does he do? But he invades this life known as a Christian, known as the body of Christ. And what happens is we begin to behave as God behaves, and it's completely otherworldly. And the world doesn't know what to do with it because we actually think more about their needs than we even do our own. What? How does that work? Look at this. How are you going to deal with your weed problem? Love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the law is actually fulfilled. All the standards, all the perfection is filled by love. It's actually satisfied by love. But that's like someone looking at your garden, and say you've tried to rake up all the the weeds, and you planted the good seed, and says, yeah, what you need is water. Well, that's good to know, and it's a nice piece of information, and I can tell you, yeah, love will fulfill the law. And your next statement would be, all right, I need some of that. (laughs) How do I get that? Because you know what most of us do? We try and love. I mean, I'm not going to take a poll in here, but I I remember my own Christian life. It's like, okay, God, I'm going to love. That's not how you love. I'm going to be humble. That's not how you get humility. These are deposits from heaven. Unless you have a river flowing from the throne room of heaven into your life, you're not going to have this stuff. You'll have the human variety of it. It'll be your best foot forward. It'll look nice. It'll have a little spit and polish to it. However, it's cancerous on the inside. It's called self-righteousness. I could try and be the loving guy, but I truly am still, the whole while I'm doing it, thinking about me and what you think of me. You think I'm good at this love thing? You see, even as we're doing it, it's still based on the wrong motive. What we must do is change this. There's like a gate inside of us, and unless that gate opens, which is the concept of denying self, giving up our life, repenting, turning from us, And when that gate opens, then what happens? Well, behind that gate is something very special, but it's capped. God's wanting to give it to us, but we must allow that gate to be opened. Revelation 22. So in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have a problem. We have a rebellion against God, and the motive of man changes. It's corrupted. The clay begins to set for generation after generation. This is looking bad. And there are people that are turning away from God by the droves. God actually destroys the earth in the flood. I mean, this is just bad news. But the very end of the story, remember God has a praorizo? It's to bring life. You know that God's ends will be gained? I know it looks dark at certain times. I know it looks bad, but guess what? He will get his due. So at the very last chapter of the Bible, literally a few verses before the very last verse of the Bible, we have this. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where did the river come from, by the way, according to this? It says it proceeded out of the throne of God. Who sits on that throne? Jesus sits on that throne. Where is that throne? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of this throne. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So he was seated seated upon a throne, and yet his train filled the what? The temple. The temple of God is where his throne is. It's called the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, there are real cherubim that cover the throne of God. There's a rainbow that surrounds it. There's an Ark of Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. It's a seat. And who sits on it? God Almighty sits on it. At the right hand is Jesus Christ, who's given all authority and all things are under his feet. And it says that out of this throne will flow a river. And then what does Paul say in the New Testament? Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Didn't anyone tell you this? That when you turn to God, did you know that he sets up his throne in here? Uh You know what that says? That's that's Christianity right here. This is Christianity. This is where God's river will flow. Yes, there's a river in the heavenlies. It's called the river of life. However, that river of life is not meant to just be in the, the, the days to come in the Beulah land. This is the temple of God. And there's supposed to be a river that is uncorked and begins to gush forth now. And it proceeds out of the throne of God. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was the tree of life. You know, the tree of life was way back in the Garden of Eden, too. But Adam and Eve were booted out of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because they sinned. And as a result, they were cut off from life. Remember what God came to do? What's his set motive? What's his guaranteed behavior? Life. He is interested in your life. The God of the universe is not self-centered. He's interested in your life. It's extraordinary. And what this tree of life, it bears 12 manner of fruits and yields her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And let him that is athirst thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Something has happened between that line and way back in the book of Genesis. Or I should say it backwards. In the book of Genesis all the way to this line. There's something has happened. This is the very end of the, of the word of God. In the very beginning, we have a crisis. Something has happened in between that has changed everything because we were cut off from the tree of life. We were cut off from this river. Something has changed, and that something is everything to us. Sin, that which keeps us from the garden of love. So, sin, when it entered into this world, God said, When you eat of that tree, or if you eat of that tree, the day in which you do, you will die. And they ate of it. So called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. Sin keeps us from the garden, the garden of love, the garden of Eden, the paradise of God. You see, the word garden in, in the Bible is not necessarily a garden like with fruits and vegetables and carrots and a blueberry patch over here it is like a tree more like an orchard and it's where the trees of god grow and trees are a very critical thing in scripture because in the in the garden of eden there were two trees in the midst of the garden there's a whole bunch of other trees and they had had fruit on them too but there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there was a tree of life but adam and eve chose the wrong tree you know that the other tree was just sitting there for the taking (laughs) why didn't they eat that one You have two trees, yeah? You have the juice of the apple, or whatever fruit it was, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God has made a way. He is the way to a return to the garden of love. And it's a tree. It's called Calvary. It's called the cross. And when we come to that tree, though we have sinned, he has made a way and he has made atonement so that we can now access that tree. Who wouldn't come to the tree? Why wouldn't you come to the tree? Because when you come to that tree, there's a higher law. This is the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. This is the law of believe and live. If you believe, if you trust that the fruit of this tree will save you, you turn unto it, turn away from that life, turn away from this, you will live. Who wouldn't do that? Sin, that which keeps us from the garden of love. The confession of Samuel Logan Bringle. In the Salvation Army, which we've talked a lot about in the past four weeks, the original Salvation Army, It's just an extraordinary story, but there was one of the key leaders in it in the beginning, his name is Samuel Logan Bringle, and this is just a, an amazing quote from him, when he first was confessing his life in Christ. And so he was getting up in front of a crowd, and this first line is what he said, and then his second one is the testimony of what followed. So he got up in front of an audience and said, God blessed the word mightily to others, but I think he blessed it most to myself. That confession put me on record. It cut the bridges down behind me. Three worlds were now looking at me as one who professed that God has given him a clean heart. I could not go back now. I had to go forward. God saw that I meant to be true till death. So two mornings after that, just as I got out of bed and was reading some of the words of Jesus, he gave me such a blessing as I had never dreamed a man could have this side of heaven. It was a heaven of love that came into my heart. I walked out over Boston Common before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. Oh, how I loved. In that hour, I knew Jesus, and I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I loved the sparrows. I loved the dogs. I loved the horses. I loved the little urchins on the streets. I loved the strangers who hurried past me. I loved the heathen. I loved the world. What's happened to this guy? What's happened to him? Has this happened to you? That's the question. You see, when you read that, it should stir something. It's sort of like, yeah, I know what you mean, Mr. Brangle, Or, what in the world is that guy talking about? How could you love the dogs? You see, something took place inside of this man. A gate was opened. We could call it a floodgate. Something changed inside of him. That same thing must change inside of us because what it leads to is this. But this is not earthly. This is not normal. This is not how humanity behaves. This is how God behaves. The heavenly picture. So there's a set motive. God has set his motive, and it's to bring life, to give, and to bless. Isn't that amazing that that's how God has moved? He is initiating this idea of, I must bring life, I must give, I must bless. Why do you think he created us in the first place? This is all part of his motive. The river gushes forth. So the life of the son is given. You see, we failed in our life. We have rebelled. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God loves us. It's such a mystifying thing. He hates sin. But for whatever reason, he has set his love on us. And so the river gushes forth. You see, this river has an aim. There's a movement behind it. And where is it headed? It's headed to the lowest place of need. It's headed to bring life to you. You need it. He's coming. The river gushes forth. The life of the Son is given. We call that grace. Love packaged in the person of God. So the set motive is love. The motive of God is love. And then the river we're going to call grace. You see, God sends forth his grace as a result of his love. So he loves us, so he sends forth the river. Now a tree grows up in the midst of the river with healing in its leaves and abundant fruit for all to partake of. You know what that tree is? You know what it, those fr- the, that fruit is? It's love. And you can say, well, well, no, I thought love was the motive. You see, this is the amazing thing about love. Love is what starts it. Grace is then what comes cascading forth and then what grows up out of the grace. Love. What is the fruit that comes forth out of our lives, out of that river? It's called love. You see, God is moved by love. God is love. And then God sends forth his life to us. And what springs out of us? Love. It bears the fruit of love. The love. We'll call it the fountainhead for the mighty river. So at the very basis of this great river is love. God so loves that he sends forth his life. For God so loved the world. Obviously, that statement has been so, in a strange way, overused to the point where we don't even hear it anymore. We don't recognize it anymore. We all know it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's almost like that's the tactic of the devil. To stick it so often up in front of us that we don't even notice it anymore. God so loved. That is the motive. That is the behavior of God that moves him. What moves God? Love. Love moves him. What moves you? Huh, there's the key question. You see, when God changes you, you begin to be moved by something different. You're no longer moved by self-interest, self-comfort, self-aggrandizement, self self applause self-pity, self-security. I don't care what self-thing it is. That no longer moves you. You're moved by love. The same impetus, the same motive of God becomes your motive. And that's known as salvation. Salvation from you. Salvation from the wrong motive. Because if you change direction, if you open that floodgate, then all of God can come through. It's when you try and preserve your motive that you block the grace of God from coming. The garden enclosed. So in Song of Songs, it talks about this garden, that we are. You see, we're supposed to be the garden enclosed. This is the great love song of Scripture. This is the sort of love song that God would write. And it is a garden that is protected. And it has a river that rushes through it. And, but there's a wall around it so that the world outside cannot partake of these fruits. These fruits are growing up for God himself. And then he can share them with the nations. But this garden is his. A garden enclosed is my sister and my spouse. A fountain of gardens. A well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. But something went wrong. It's called the violation. And the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" Remember, she had juice from the apple, or the plum, or the fig. We're not exactly sure. The woman said, uh, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." So, so say you have a little juice streaming down your chin. What have you done? What has happened in your life? Why is it that you're so dead? Why is it that your garden is full of weeds? Uh, The serpent deceived me. You sinned. You have violated the law of God. You have turned against him, and the law wants to make it clear to your soul today that you are a sinner. You have violated God. You are responsible. Don't blame the serpent. You chose. You still agreed with the serpent. The serpent is judged, and he's deserving of judgment. But so are you if you listen to him. You see, faith is listening to God. Unbelief is listening to the devil. Eve put more confidence in the words of the devil than she did in the word of God. Where do you put your confidence? Are you putting your confidence in the words of the devil or are you putting your confidence in the word of God? God says, turn from that. Repent and believe. So what are you gonna listen to? The garden closed off. God, because he loved us, kicked us out of the garden. Because if we ate of that tree of life before a way was made to it, we would be eternally set in our motive. We would live forever in that state. And so God, because he loved us, removed us from the Garden of Eden, from that close fellowship, because he's holy. He's technically holy, 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 which means other than us, other than us, he's other than us. He is not like us, and he cannot have fellowship with sin. And so we were separated. And there is an estrangement between us and God. But God's motive doesn't change. God still loves us and he has a way. And what does his motive say? I must get them back. I must return them to intimate fellowship. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The desolate ruin. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. This is the So this is the guaranteed behavior, this is set, it was set long ago. You want to understand predestination, that's it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Set long ago. God is a gift. God is a tree. God is a way. God is a means. But if you reject that means, there's only one wage for you. And that's death. That's set. It's not changing. You're not going to get a special exception. You have the life of Jesus Christ given for you. You have one means of salvation. One door to go through. You choose that door and you find life. The power of sin. I have a little subtitle for this one called The Deception Runs Deep. Why in the world... Would anyone stay in sin when they have the gift of God that leads to eternal life? Haven't you ever had that thought? I mean, I've had it so many times in my life. It's like, what? This life is so good. I am the happiest man on earth. I have Jesus Christ just gushing forth in me, out of me. I love it. Well, why wouldn't you want this? Now, there could be a lot of answers back from you guys going, yeah, you're weird. Uh, (laughs) But let me give you one of the reasons The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You see, the fool has never dealt with the law. He has never been convicted. He has never seen his foolishness. A fool thinks he's wise. Did you know that? You know how many people out there have rejected Jesus Christ and think they're brilliant and think all Christians are idiots? They are right in their own eyes, and yet in God's eyes, they're the idiots. They have rejected the truth. There is only one truth. There is only one means of salvation. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Hey, hey, like, I like my garden of weeds. Saying something about my garden of weeds? I like weeds. I like weeds better than your roses and your pansies and your violets. Weeds. We prosper from it. We find satisfaction. There's a certain intoxication in this garden and it has duped us, and we think we're the wise ones. Meanwhile, there's a pottery, so in a guaranteed outcome for what we're doing, as long as we are harvesting that, we die. And as long as that's the fruit that we show, we die. We cannot please God. We cannot have fellowship with God, and when we die, we're eternally separated from God. The clay is moist right now. This is the day of salvation. This is the day in which God can say, Open the gate. Let me in. Let me take this garden as my own. Let me cultivate it. Let me produce the fruit that it was meant to produce. The love. The fountainhead that aches to burst forth its mighty healing waters for the sacred garden's sake. There's a scene in the Bible of the prodigal son. But you could also call it the father aching. The son has... Spent his inheritance, and he's wallowing in the pig slop. And yet, where's the father? The father, I always picture him fogging up the windows, day and night, longing. You see, the father is moved by love. The father longs for that son. And when he sees him, what does the father do? He literally throws all dignity to the wind and starts running after him. You see, your God is moved by love. It's a fountainhead. It's a river, and it is blocked up. It's like dammed up. He's pressing, but there is something that must take place for that fountain to break through into our lives. So it's the fountainhead that aches to burst forth its mighty healing waters for the sacred garden's sake. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. The law, we'll call it the first. The deception must be exposed. For I was alive without the law once, says Paul. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Doesn't that sound funny that he was alive once without the law? That meant, hey, I got all sorts of green here. Yeah, he had a green and he thought it was life. But now that he's looking back, that wasn't life at all. But when the law came, it exposed the fact that he actually had no real life. And so he died. And suddenly began to realize, man, I have no water here. I have no real plants here. And so he suddenly was awakened to the dearth, to the death that he actually had. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the commandment came, the law came, and what does it show us? Weeds are exceedingly sinful. Weeds are the destruction of every good garden. How do I get my weeds out? How do I take care of this property that I have? The gospel, the work of God to restore the garden to its grand purpose. Who did the work? You? Are you the great redeemer of your garden patch? God did the work, and that's the gospel. He did it. The gospel could be said that simply. He did it. And you turn and say, you did it? I did it for you. And then... Just like I always say, if I stuck a $10 bill up here on the stage and I said, it's yours. It's yours. It's reserved for you, just sitting right here. And then you went off to lunch this afternoon, and you say, yeah, could you pay for my meal? I don't have any money. And they say, didn't Eric give you a $10 bill? Oh, yeah, true. Just because you know I gave you a $10 bill doesn't mean you have the $10 bill. You must take it. And the same is true with the work of God. Take it. It's yours. You don't just esteem the facts of the gospel. You must take it. You must grab it. It's called reckon. Reckon it to your account. I have it. By faith, I have it. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The repentance the admittance to the wrong and the putting off of the rebellion, the laying down of the weed seed. Are you wrong? Are you going to defend yourself? Are you going to stand there against God's law and say, hey, I'm actually not that bad. I'm fine. I think God will overlook all that. Or are you going to just listen to God and say, and when he says, I can't overlook that. I'm just. I'm perfectly righteous. There's only one means of salvation, and that's to find yourself in my righteousness. You see, he lived perfect without sin. And he has knit together in and through his work on the cross, clothing for us. It's called the robe of righteousness. And so when we turn to him, he clothes us in his work, in his righteousness, in his good deed. And so as a result, when we turn in faith to him, we then truly are righteous. We are just. We are appropriate in his eyes. Not because we are perfect, because that which clothes us is. So the repentance is admitting that we're wrong and turning from it. If you recognize that your motive's been wrong, what should you do? Acknowledge it and say, God, I agree with your law. I'm supposed to love. I'm supposed to be giving of my life. I'm supposed to worship you. I don't, I don't know that I've cared at all. I don't care about you. I don't care about other people. What's wrong with me? I have like a dead heart. You only begin to realize that when God begins to move upon your life. And when you realize that, what should you do? It's called repent. Turn from it. Change directions. I'm not going to keep going in that direction. If you recognize that by going this direction, you were headed over a cliff, what should you do when the fog blows away and you're like, whoa. Uh, And that's what the law is. It's like shining light, blowing away fog. You're like, I'm just about to die. And God goes, bingo. (laughs) And he says, how about we go this way? You see, this is the direction I'm in. My motive heads my servants this way. And so we repent, and we turn, and we allow God to change our motive. We allow him to set us off of the throne of our life. You see, where does the fountain come from? The throne. So when you're sitting on it, did you know that you're blocking it? But when you get off of it, you bend your knee and allow him his rightful place, what happens? The floodwaters break forth. It's that simple. It's called repentance. Turn. Get off the throne. Go in the other direction. Change the motive. And it's not that you can change it. You can just agree with God who does change it. Put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. So you have clothing on already. You're supposed to put it off. Which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy, communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Take off the old. This is the concept of repentance. Remove that old life and turn to him, and be clothed in his life. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does Jesus say? Repent, ye, and believe the gospel. Repent, put off the old, and believe my work is your work. Believe that I am your rescuer. Believe that my cross work is sufficient for you. Believe! Turn to me, says Jesus, and you will live. So the faith, the implicit confidence in the great work of the cross, the turning over of the garden to its rightful gardener, and the presenting and the yielding of the garden to the return of the mighty river. I don't know why we're so possessive of these bodies of ours, our lives, our plans, our ambitions, our dreams, but we are. And that's part of our wrong motive. But Christianity starts at the very core, And it says, are you willing to give up your garden? Huh? My garden? My garden of weeds? That's my special place. (laughs) You see, God says the only way for this garden to work is for you to relinquish it. You need to die so that I can live. And it's not a death where we, like, dissipate out of our life and now we're watching our life from 100 yards away saying, what's God doing with my life? We're still in this body, but we are now with bent knee, dead to our place and our position, it's like being in an airplane. Is the law of gravity still in effect? Yes, but you're dead to its power. Why? Because there's a higher law known as the law of aerodynamics. And when you enter into Christ, you function after a higher law known as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. However, outside of Christ, you're under the law of sin and death. So when you enter into Christ, there is salvation, and you are now dead to the old ruling power. The old man no longer has control over you. Your flesh, no longer dictates to you how you're going to live. Now you can actually look at the word of God and say, God, do that in me. God, I see that I'm supposed to be humble. Boy, could you, with your flood waters, work in that area, go to that territory too? Please, just flood through me. I need you. You can't love on your own. You can't be humble on your own. You can't even believe. You can't grow in faith without that river. These are graces. They're known as graces even in the Bible. This is the work of the river. But the river is blocked because someone is seated in the wrong spot. The grace, that mighty river that drenches the dead plot of land with abundant life, destroys and cleanses the dead territory of all disease, and richly saturates and fertilizes the soil of the garden with everything needed for heavenly flowers to once again bud and burst forth with beauty. It's the power, the life, the impetus, and the strength of God's life poured forth. The love. Remember I said we start with love, and what do we finish with? Love. Love is the motive of God, and it's the fruit of God. The beautiful heavenly flowers that burst forth in the garden. So imagine that you heed God, and you believe. And you say, your work is my work. You put off the old man, you put on him. And you allow him to take a seat on the throne of your life. You know what happens? A fountain opens. A fountain bursts forth. And your life begins to be drenched. This plot of land that was so dead, so dry, suddenly is saturated. And what does he do? He tends to your garden. He says, you know, I'm going to want a huge plant of patience right over here. Like a little mercy. Yeah, right there. Let's put a little of that over there. Let's have the brook go through here. You see, he's the landscape designer of this garden. And he begins to grow it up. And so when someone walks into our life, no longer do they get weeds and thistles. Like, ah, ah, what do you have here? They smell the luscious fragrance of heaven on earth. It's like, what is that? that's, That's heaven. Down here? Yeah, that's how the church works. You see, we're just a little plot of land that he's able to plant his stuff down here. And as a result, the world gets the fragrance. Some of them will hate it and want to kill you for it, by the way. But those that are being drawn unto heaven will smell it and fall in love with it. The evidence of transformation. The grand tree of life that vividly and powerfully grows up in the midst of the river, offering its beauty, majesty, strength, shade, and abundant fruit to all that pass by. When the church functions this way, they become a grand tree. The tree of life. It's Jesus. We become a picture of Jesus. We're called the body of Christ. We might as well be called the tree of life. We're bearing fruit in season, and therefore the world can come by. All the nations can find satisfaction, shade, refuge in the church of Jesus Christ, which is just a garden that's been given over to Jesus. We're not the answer. He is. However, he uses us as his ministry tool. Love. The word in the Greek is a little more complex than the word we use because we have one word for every form of love. So I could love sleep and love God at the same time. And those are two very, very different things. So the word is agape. And I'll call it the alpha and the omega of God's motive. It's the beginning of God's motive. This is in the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first letter and omega is the last. So it's the beginning. It's what moves God. It's his motive. But it's also the end. So what is God after? Love. You see, what starts him? Love. And how does he finish? With love. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God. And knows God. He that loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. If you are not producing this fruit, you do not know God. Did did I say that clear enough, or should I say it again? According to John, who, by the way, is uncomfortably blunt, he says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So you say that you know God. Prove it with love. You say, well, I don't have any love. Well, you do if you've turned your life over to God. You see, he is love. So if he's in you, guess what? Love comes out. You can't help that. Your job is to merely get off the throne and to allow the waters through. And when the waters come through, there's a guaranteed behavior. There is a set motive for everyone that yields and believes. It will happen in you. It is not a special thing for one or two of us in here where love comes out and the rest of us are like, oh, one day, maybe. Every single one of us will show forth the fruit of love. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Agape, the fountainhead and the chief end. It's what starts God and it's how he ends. Question one, what is the chief end of man? This is the the Westminster Confession. Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So I'm going to use that terminology here. Agape is the glory of God. This is the chief end. It is the glory of God. You want to see God clearly? What are you going to see? You're going to see agape. You're going to see his nature. Love is the full manifestation of his nature. It's like the big heading, now you have kindness, mercy, all these things underneath it. But the big heading is love, agape. It's the glory of God, the full weighty expression of his person, his beauty, his holiness, his majesty, his joy, his peace, his affection, his purity, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his wrath, and his power. Agape is of God, and God is agape. Agape is God behavior, God thoughts, God actions, God nature, God character, God ethics, God compassion, God's manner with sin. And it is this agape that reveals God. Agape is the great work of grace and the great end of faith. In 2 Peter, it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. So we just were talking about the divine nature. The divine nature is revealed in love. It says, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust, and beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith. So you start with faith. And you're supposed to add these things to it. Now, I have them hidden in Greek, so you don't really understand what they mean. But add to your faith erite, typically translated virtue. And add to erite gnosis, typically translated knowledge. And to gnosis egritea. I'm not going to keep translating this, but that's self-control. And to egritea, hupomone. And to hupomone, eusebia. And to eusebia, philadelphia. And to philadelphia, agape. For if these things be in you, you see how it ended? started with faith, and what did it end with? Agape. This is what's called the graces, the seven graces of God. Remember how I said I had seven fountains? I like that. See, I'm very excited about this. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things. You shall never fall. Introducing the house of grace, the house of seven rooms. So erite, the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Remember I described grace as the river? So God is love, and he's moved by love. So what does he give us? He gives us the life of his son, grace. It's the flood, the floodwaters. Where did they start? They started at the cross. Remember, the soldier pierces his side, and what comes gushing out? A living river. You know what blood is in the Hebrew? It's life. So there was blood and water, that's life water. That's the river of life. The river of life comes gushing forth out of his side. His wounds, he suffered to make available to us that river and when you turn to that cross, what do you get? You get the river. And so arite is the first work of grace. It's the grace for overcoming sin and walking in triumph. Gnosis, the grace for understanding truth and walking in faith. Egriteia, the grace for guarding the soul from sin's encroachment. And walking in self-control. hoopamoni, the grace for endurance, perseverance, and immovability. Eusebio, the grace for honorable action. Philadelphia, the grace for people. And agape, the grace for walking in all the graces. And for revealing God's very nature and behavior always. Who, who wouldn't want that? That's life and life abundant. And the world will crucify you. That is everything I yearn for. Probably everything you yearn for. And yet the world will hate you for. Because it's the life of God, and the world loves its darkness. And when light comes striding onto the scene of time, they must put it out. Because they want their weed patch. The question is, do you want your weed patch, or do you want to be saved from it? And do you want God's flower bed? Do you want him to move in and bring life and life abundant to your soul? How do we get this love? The Father God so loves. So how is this going to work? Well, here's a very short way of saying it. The Father God so loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the Son has been sent. So the Son expresses the Father's love perfectly. But God commended his love toward us. Well, how did he do that? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God has been given to us in and through the Son. But how does it get to us? Remember, We have this river that's been made available to us. The way has been made. It's come forth out of his side. But 2,000 years has passed. And there's a lot of lies floating around in the world that are trying to diminish the work of the cross and tell you, no, it didn't happen. Oh, no, the disciples robbed the tomb. He didn't really rise from the dead. There's lies everywhere. How did you come to believe? Well, when Jesus ascended, he didn't leave us empty-handed. He gave us that which we needed. He gave us a river. But that river... It is not just some impersonal body of water. It's a person, and it's God himself. It's known as the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes this love and sheds it abroad in our hearts. And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So this is a big little chunk of John here. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall, we shall, he shall hear that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. So Jesus says, I have received everything from the Father. Therefore said I that he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, shall take of mine, which is everything, by the way, and shall show it unto you. How are you going to get this great grace? How are you going to get that great purchase of the cross, though it took, to, to, took place 2,000 years ago? you have an advocate. You have someone who's laboring to bring you everything that Jesus Christ accomplished, and he will not stop. He will keep pressing. Remember the father fogging up the windows? This is the nature of God, and the nature of the Holy Spirit is the same as God, because he is God, and so his motive is love. His motive is life, and he has been set free from that temple. He was in the temple behind a veil, but when Jesus died, that veil was rent, and a lot of people say it's so that we can get in, but have you ever thought about it? So the Holy Spirit can come out and bring you in. The Holy Spirit has gone mobile. <laughs> the Father has glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. And you can say, well, that's great, but I'm cut off. The Father so loved the world, he desires to share of his great eternal life and wealth. The Son, as the high priest, intercedes for lost humanity and lives the worthy life that we could not. Bears the just consequence and wrath for our sin. Sheds his own blood as the Lamb of Sacrifice and subsequently opens up a way of salvation for those of us who would believe. Due to his perfect obedience, he receives from the Father as our legal representative, our King, Lord, and high priest. The glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. He is given the position above all other positions from the Father. And all things are under his feet. Now, we start out with the Father so loved the world. Now look what we have. The Son so loves the world. The Son has received all, all of it. He has the entire inheritance, but he's not selfish. He's not like us. What is his motive? It's the same as the Father. What does he want to bring us? Life, that our joy may be full. He is interested in restoring us and healing us, and now he has the position as our intercessor, He is our high priest and he knows our infirmities. He is very well acquainted with it and he is on our side. The only one who can bring condemnation to you is your greatest advocate. The only one that can condemn you is also your greatest fan. He wants to save you. Let him save you! For the Son so loved the world, he desires to share of his great eternal life and wealth. So he goes to be with the Father in order to supply us entry into the throne of grace in order that we might partake of his glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation. For this to be accomplished, he gives all his glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation to his spirit in order that he might bring it to us. So the Father sends forth his Son. The Son does it. He accomplishes his errand. And the Father gives everything that the Father has to the Son. But because the Son so loves us and he wants us to have it, he returns to the Father and then bequeaths it to the Spirit and sends forth the Spirit to us to bring us all that God is. And guess what? The Holy Spirit, yes, so loves the world. That he plunges forth into this dark world in order to proclaim that the glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation that belongs to Jesus has been made available to all who would believe in Christ Jesus and his mighty cross work. He convicts, he woos, he labors to awaken the dead in sin that they may be revived. He ushers forth the lifeless soul into the realities of Jesus and him crucified. He supplies faith that one might believe. And then when one believes, he clothes the believer in the perfect and spotless robe of Christ's righteousness and brings them to the cross in Christ Jesus, severing their old life from them in the death of Christ. The Spirit brings them to the burial of their old behavior, and he brings them to the resurrection life unto a new creation in Christ Jesus." He then brings them forth into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus and boldly pushes them forward into the throne of grace where the Father rejoices in receiving them and allows them near in the person of Christ, even adopting them as as his very own children where access is given to all the glory, honor, power, riches, wisdom, strength, blessing, thanksgiving, and salvation of Christ. The Father so loves the believer that he tells the Son to tell the Spirit to tell us to ask him in the person of Christ for the gift of the Spirit to be given us in baptism. The Son so loves the believer that he instantly declares to the Spirit to reveal to the believer that all he need do is ask and the Father will certainly give. The Spirit so loves the believer and so longs to indwell the believer in order to shower that believer with the full manifestation of God's very life that the Spirit calls forth the believer and reminds them of the very words of the Son and says, Ask the Father. Have you asked for the mighty river of grace? Have you asked for that strength, that power, all the purchase of the cross to be made available to you? It is, have you asked? In the person of Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness and his authority, the believer asks the Father for the Spirit. And from, the, and, and from beneath the throne upon which Jesus Christ sits, the Spirit of God gushes forth like a mighty river. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Echeo. It's not a keikio. I know the Ellerslie students are familiar with that word. This is a very different word. Echeo. It means to gush forth in great measure, to severely hemorrhage blood as from a spear wound, to burst forth in a massive quantity, to dump out in entirety, to break open and spill out, to distribute in great measure. Could you imagine if we had a vessel and we dumped Niagara Falls into it? Just a little holder, and Niagara Falls was coming into it. What we would have would be echeo. It would be gushing forth out of it. This vessel can't hold it. So what does the vessel need to do? It needs to give that which is coming into it. That which is coming into it is supposed to go somewhere else. It's not supposed to just fill the vessel. It's supposed to gush. And this is the word that the Bible uses. This is the deluge. This is what has opened up. To cascade over to the vast abundance of substance gushing without restraint into a small vessel. A Niagara waterfall overwhelmingly plunging into a small container. This is where we see it in Titus. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done... But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. He shed on us with hail, uh, abundance, superabundance, gushing forth. So we don't have the Ludi pump here. We don't have the Ludi air, water purifier. We have the heavenly one, and there's never a lack. It says, my grace is sufficient for you, which is the equivalent. This is what Charles Spurgeon says, like a little fish saying, God, will there be enough ocean water for me? If I keep swimming in this direction, will I run out of water? And God says, oh, little fishy, yes, my ocean water is sufficient for you. You have everything you need. And so when you turn to God, oh, God, will I have the love that I need? Oh, little saint, yes. My grace is sufficient for you. You will have everything you need for life and godliness. The deluge, the flood of grace. Therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offering. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. There's no loody pump here. This is a heavenly pump. And the waters will fail not. That's a promise. What do you believe in? Your experience or the word of God? Turn to the word of God and you will live. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. He that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This is what the Bible says. You are the temple of God. And when Jesus sits on that throne in us, then what breaks forth is a fountain. A fountain opens. A fountain opens when you repent, deny yourself, and allow him rightful passage into your life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And let him that is athirst thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's there for the taking. This is the no-brainer of the century, the no-brainer of the millennium, the no-brainer of all history, eternity, This is life. This is the only way to find it. God's almighty river of grace, sufficient for every thirsty soul. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. For those of you that are being sent forth today, I want you to remember that you have access to all that God is. What is your position? In Christ. If you are in Christ... That means you're clothed in his righteousness. Which also means you're clothed in his work. You're clothed in all that he performed. And when he died on that cross, your old man was crucified. Your old life is no more. It's under the deluge. And you were buried in the baptism of his death, and his burial. And no longer is your old behavior going to be seen in this earth. And when he resurrected, if you're in Christ, you're in his resurrection. and You have newness of life. And when he resurrected... He didn't just stay here on this earth. He ascended, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you're in Christ, you're where he is. He has brought you to the very throne room of grace itself. And he says, ask the Father. Ask the Father in my name, and he will give you the rushing river. And that rushing river will overtake you. It'll flood over your life. And no longer will your old, parched, weedy ground be visible. But now out of your life will bud forth and spring forth, the fruit of righteousness, love, being the chief of all fruits. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what the believer demonstrates, and this is what we have access to. Let's pray for that.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.